The challenge has been from the very beginning to have an energy crisis response and a political response that does not endanger our long-term commitment. Uh, European leaders has been exceptionally united to make sure that our reduction of energy independence from Russia is uh, fully compatible with our uh, medium-term goal to decarbonize our economy. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. I'm pleased to share with you today a special episode. Erasmus Thomas, the Director General at the European Commission in Charge of Taxation and Customs Union, was back in Washington this week and stopped by CSIS for a quick conversation with Joseph Mikett about the energy challenges in Europe this winter, the future of the energy transition and climate measures, and the state of US-EU cooperation. It's a great conversation. I'll turn it over to Joseph now. Erasmus Thomas, thank you for joining us at CSIS today. You're a friend of the program. We've spoken before. You're visiting Washington. And the thing I really want to hear from you today is how is the energy crisis in Europe affecting your plans? And in particular, the relationship between the energy transition and and the new energy security imperatives that Europe is facing is what I would love to speak with you about today. So welcome to CSIS again, and it's very nice to see you. Thank you, Joseph. It's great to be back in Washington, D.C. again, and uh, many people here all over the world in a full uh, IMF annual meetings in uh, full swing and a lot of people exchanging ideas and luckily exchanging ideas about climate change challenge that remains at the core of the policy debate here. I think in Europe, uh, since uh, we met last year, we have this uh, incredible challenge of the war, that it is our doorstep, the war by Russia at our border. And this has created uh, exceptional uh, energy security, social crisis, uh, climate emergency. And of course, unfortunately for our friends in Ukraine, real death and, uh, and destruction at our uh, border. Now, I think the, the challenge has been from the very beginning to have an energy crisis response and a political response that does not endanger our long-term commitment. And this is what we have uh, done. Uh, European leaders have been exceptionally united to make sure that our reduction of energy independence from Russia is uh, fully compatible with our uh, medium-term goal to decarbonize our economies. Well, the first one of the first actions that were adopted by European leaders was to an urgent plan to repower our economy, so accelerate energy transition with a big emphasis on renewable energy. They do not have import reliance. And uh, this has already produced results in Europe. It will unfold over the next uh, couple of years. And uh, uh, of course, very important uh, energy efficiency and demand reduction efforts and measures to optimize the use of the energy we have in the EU. And at the same time, keep promoting uh, low carbon technologies for the medium to long term keep our uh, green deal and uh, you know fit for 55 targets for 20 to 30 and uh, potentially increase them uh, and try to use as much as we can domestic resources in the short term this had has an impact in our fiscal position we needed to it has impact on our vulnerable households in our energy intensive industries there has been an increase in prices and energy prices and it has obliged us for energy security to use uh, coal in the short term 
but there is the commitment, let's say, to replace it as fast as we have replaced Russian gas. I mean, our dependency on Russian gas has dropped from 40 to 9% in very few months, and this is a testament to the unity that we have in dealing with this crisis. So it'd be great for our audience to hear your perspective on how the EU is is helping countries navigate the increased costs that consumers are facing. We stand on the precipice of the winter. Heating costs are already starting to give many people in European countries sticker shock. And there's a sense that we're sort of praying for a warm winter. Bruegel reported recently that more than 11 countries in Europe, this includes the UK, are spending more than 2.5% of GDP on energy relief. How should U.S. policymakers and thinkers look at that amount of relief spending and and how long do you think that's sustainable and and what is the commission doing on the European side of the equation to make sure that these implements are, are working appropriately? I think by and large, the policy response under the beginning after the war and when the energy prices started going up has been centered around a fundamental principle that we need to accompany the response with uh, and make it compatible with CO2 reduction. At the same time, when it comes to the fiscal front, the guiding principle was to offer targeted and time-limited support. So by and large, countries have done this. So they have not reduced uh, taxes. They have not reduced VAT on certain, or they have uh, marginally reduced excise duties always for a short period, do a a targeted support and wait and see. And the main element uh, has been so far to preserve the price signals collect you know fiscal revenues and redistribute them you know to targeted parts of the population or the industry now the energy price shock has been brutal and it has not affected only the so-called narrow band of what is called a household in conditions of energy poverty or households that are vulnerable to energy but it was so drastic the energy price increases for the households that one needs to shield uh, on average in Europe around 55% of the households and in different ways. So it's a big operation, but except in some cases, most countries, they targeted and they time limited the support. And I think this is encouraging. Now, we had negative impacts of our industry and uh, on our industry. And uh, the response there, it takes more time. It's more complicated, but I think it is at the center of our uh, policy agenda of the leaders to try to ensure that the cost of energy does not disproportionately affect our supply chains. We had unfortunate events with closure of uh, interstitial fertilizers or a certain, you know, in the aluminum sector or in chemical sector. And uh, there has been now a good debate and the strong measures that have been taken place that, you know, demand reduction is not unnecessarily threaten our supply chains. And uh, the fiscal cost is high. It is a little bit higher than, uh, you know, very tight and technical calculations would have done. We have the IMF published uh, this week uh, uh, policy advice and I think there is uh, rationalization on the fiscal you know measures that are taken and I think this goes hand in hand with uh, measures to reduce demand and I think that we will see this working uh, the support has been for three months for six months and as we take other measures complementary measures that the president has announced 
or we have taken on demand reduction, the two will uh, reinforce each other and therefore the, the fiscal support can be more measured. I think given the magnitude of the crisis and the fact that it was unexpected, by and large Europe has held well, European governments have held well to that premises. We are going to have a difficult winter and uh, it depends how difficult on the weather conditions and the president and of the commission and the, uh, or the college, we have already announced that it is going to be a tough also for next winter. Uh, we need to replenish uh, for next winter. We need to diversify our sources of supply. We have diversified, but uh, it's not the same result for all countries. Certain critical infrastructure needs to be reinforced, and this will take two years and not only just a few months. But there is a lot of solidarity. There are regional agreements, solidarity agreements, and therefore I think we will have a good outcome, but there is a temporary fiscal cost. There's also, I've read about a raising of a windfall tax or the solidarity payments from companies that are doing well in an environment of very high energy prices. What role will that policy play in, in helping to resolve some of the challenges you're facing? We had to adopt measures, a solidarity contribution and the so-called revenue cap for parts of the energy industry that had unexpectedly high profits just because of the developments in the gas market and the electricity market, developments that... Uh, you know, were driven primarily by Russian behavior as it dominates a Russian gas supply or market. So again, I think the same principles. We made a very targeted intervention, time-limited intervention, proportionate intervention, because in the case of the oil and gas industry extraction and other industries, we had a solidarity contribution, which is a 33% charge, one-off charge for the excess profits. Then in the issue of revenue cap, we have allowed for substantial revenue to cover, let's say, the investment needs that all these sectors need to do. So the measures, the tools were used uh, in a proportionate and measured way for a time-limited way. They have not undermined investor confidence and uh, we have worked as much as we could given the tight limits together with the industry to do that. And uh, keeping a proportionate approach is, is, is very important in that regard. So you mentioned early in your comments the role of renewables and the acceleration of Europe's adoption of renewables under the Repower EU plan. Can you give us a sense of this new energy security imperative? Is that helping break through some of the challenges or barriers to renewable deployment, the same ones we see here in the U.S.? And here I'm thinking, you know, it takes five years to site a wind farm in Germany is a number we've seen in the Wall Street Journal. The permitting, the, the social and cultural pieces of that challenge that set outside immediate finance needs. Indeed, you are raising uh, issues that uh, have been uh, hindering the fast deployment for a number of years in specific areas. But uh, we saw already a drastic increase on development and investment this year. Governments, local communities, uh, you know, uh, stakeholders, uh, civil society, they have seen that it is necessary to come to certain compromises quickly. Uh, you know, the private sector puts uh, more energy into finding solutions. So... I think uh, we have seen that uh, when it comes to solar, to wind, uh, to onshore wind and offshore wind, we had definitely a certain acceleration of deployment of the capacity in Europe. I think uh, the necessary infrastructure that it is needed in terms of uh, transmission systems is moving. There are certain, in certain areas, in certain countries, 
disputes that continue and therefore uh, certain potential capacity is blocked, but we did have uh, a substantial acceleration. I think the acceptance in the society of particularly solar or wind uh, energy is increasing because of this lack of alternative or the, the lack of, of gas as a reality. And uh, I think this is going down well. Of course, at the same time, uh, in this area also, we have to keep into account uh, the long-term perspective. We will need new energy technologies. Uh, Europe has announced and is now is accelerating its investment in hydrogen, in other energy sources. We do need that the energy transition from the technology point of view, uh, there is a certain uh, road to be covered in the short term with existing renewable technologies. But we also know that the last mile that will bring us to a new status quo in 2030, 2035 requires new technologies and we are putting uh, money into innovation and uh, uh, new solutions, experimenting with new solutions that they will give the scale that we need for our energy system and also they will give solutions to areas where the current renewable sources they cannot deliver. So our industry, our heavy industry, energy incentive industry, it cannot only uh, rely on uh, solar or wind power and we know that certain forms of transport that they cannot uh, work on only on this. So we do have a coherent policy that is moving forward in all fronts but the resistance of the population or administrations to changing the status quo in the energy mix has been affected and uh, certain obstacles have been overcome and there is no more openness to change. So I'm, I'm interested, finally, in your thoughts on transatlantic cooperation. In the immediate aftermath of this, we've seen a big shift in U.S. LNG exports from Asian and global markets to Europe. That was an early point of agreement between the EU and the U.S. But when you're here in, U in Washington, what's your message to U.S. policymakers and to our civil society about the path forward for transatlantic cooperation on these challenges? Well, the, the cooperation on LNG has been a big success and it has helped a lot to provide security. There was a joint statement by our presidents earlier this year that there will be an additional objective of imports of 15 BCM and we already have 41 BCM. More than 50% of exports from the US come to Europe and this has created a different perspective of cooperation between the two countries in this particular sector. I think the recent uh, agreement in the U.S. on uh, deploying uh, renewable energy and supporting uh, climate objectives through the IRA bill has been particularly positive in bringing the two parties closer together around the climate agenda and coming with on that front, let's say, a more common position going to the COP27 and also having a basis for our climate agenda. There are other issues that need more work and therefore it is good to be able to work together. We do face challenges in this area that go beyond, let's say, the impact of the war in Europe. We have a um, Chinese economy that uh, despite the uh, lower growth that's still uh, influenced by the COVID pandemic, Chinese economy is moving uh, substantially into gas. Is changing the demand of gas. A 10% increase, let's say, in use of gas, uh, 40 BCM per year. It's almost the consumption that we have in France, in a country like France. So we need to take into account and we need to focus. The EU-US cooperation needs to focus on the challenges around the world, whether it is uh, the developing countries or whether it's other countries like China that will uh, take different course and they will 
influence, let's say, our energy security landscape. Well, I'm very grateful that you had a few minutes to chat with me today. And uh, thank you for your leadership. And I look forward to the next time you're in Washington. Thanks to the Director General for stopping by CSIS. We look forward to many more conversations with him. Thanks for listening to this special episode. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at CSIS.org. As always, for updates, follow us on Twitter at CSIS.